Now, in the sixth psalm here, you have actually, and I've labeled it, the perfect man in the midst of chastisement, and some have called it a cry for mercy. Well, the reason it is, it's because that this man that's looked about him and seen all of the wickedness, he's also looked at his own heart, and he recognizes he's not perfect before God at all. And these other prayers and psalms had to do with the morning and the evening, but this is one that actually has to do with the darkest night. And we have here this Sheminith, and this is a new term that's given to us here that means upon the octave. And there are those that believe that it means it's to be sung by male voices. And the psalm has been called actually the first penitential psalm. Now, the psalm we just looked at is an imprecatory psalm. Now, this is a penitential psalm. It's a cry of repentance. And I think that you can look at it like this. Here is a cry for mercy, a repentance at the very beginning in the first four verses. Listen to this. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also very vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. You see, he sees his own need, and it's a wonderful cry of repentance. Then we have here his confession, beginning at verse 5. He says here, For in death there is no remembrance of thee in Sheol. Who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning all the night. Make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It groweth old because of mine enemies." I think that you have here a picture of David. I think here you have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you have here a picture of Israel in those last days. I think you have here a picture of believers right now, of you and me. This is a marvelous psalm, therefore. This is a cry out of the very depths of despair for mercy. And only mercy can save us and we're told again and again in the New Testament that God is rich in mercy. He's got plenty for you, and he's got plenty for me, and he has to use a whole lot for me, but he'll be able to, you know, to have some for you also. And that's going to be very nice, because you and I both are certainly going to need it. And it is said of the Lord Jesus, you remember, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. And he could say, I'm weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's Psalm 69, 3. And then again in Psalm 42, 3, my tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? And then Psalm 38, 10, my heart panteth. My strength faileth me as for the light mine eyes, it's also gone from me. And then finally in Psalm 88, 9, Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction, 
Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I've stretched out my hands unto thee. You see, in all these expressions, and now I've only given you a very small segment, you have the Spirit of Christ speaking in prophecy of his own suffering through which he passed in the days of his humiliation. And his people, the nation Israel, that remnant in the great tribulation will be passing through it. And listen, today many of God's saints have passed through it. But the great comfort is he's been through it, friends. These are the things he suffered. These are the things he endured. And I don't care where you are or what you're going through today. He's already been through it, and he can comfort you. How wonderful it is to have a Savior like this. And he says, "'Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping.'" And here you have the answer to prayer. "'The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer.'" And we're told concerning the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7, "'Who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears,' Unto him that was able to save him out of death, he was heard in that he feared. And that's our confidence today. God will hear and answer a prayer when we're in deep trouble. Isn't that a comfort to your friend today? Many of you are in a bad spot because you've written and told us that. And then we come here in this tenth verse here, the last verse. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and very vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Now we come to this marvelous seventh psalm, and we just have a few moments with it. And someone has said that there should be written over this psalm, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we are told here, Shigeon of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjamite. And this word means crying aloud. And this is David singing. I'd love to have heard him sing this psalm. And this is a loud cry. And it reveals, I think, prophetically the persecution and the final suffering of the God-fearing remnant of Israel during the time of the Great Tribulation. And it's the outcry against the man of sin. And we'll see that in the next psalm also. And you have here confidence of prayer. Listen to this translation. Jehovah my God, in thee I seek shelter. Save me from my pursuers and rescue me. Lest like a lion he tear my soul, rendering in pieces and no one to deliver. Now, who's the lion? That lion is Satan, by the way. For he goes up and down this earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then you have that unjust persecution. Jehovah, my God, if I've done this, should iniquity be in my hands? If I've meted out evil to him who is peaceful, the injustice and innocent suffering. And that's something that I don't understand today in this world. I don't propose to understand it. But I want to say this to you. I know somebody who does understand it. And he's going to explain it to us someday. There are things in my life, I'm sure there's in your life, you don't understand. And I can't explain it to you by choice because I don't even know why I have to go through some of it. But he's going to explain it someday. And then we have here 
a very wonderful part. And this is a psalm now. It's not the darkest night like the last one. You have morning light here. Listen to this. Verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. And then verse 11. Listen to this. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, my friend, we may have the new morality today, but God doesn't go along with it. He's not buying it today. He's not following it. And because of that, we can say in this last verse, the 17th, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. My, these psalms ought to get some of us singing. I can't sing, but I might make an attempt at it. Now, friends, we come to the eighth psalm. We come to the second great messianic psalm. And it's called a messianic psalm, the second one. Psalm 2 was the first one. Psalm 8 is the second one. And they are psalms that are quoted in the New Testament and make direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this psalm is quoted three times in the New Testament. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself mentioned this psalm You remember what is called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when the children in the temple cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And at that time, the chief priests and the scribes said to him, Hearest thou what these say? And it was then that the Lord Jesus said to them, And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. Well, that's in Matthew 21:16, and very frankly, he's quoting from this psalm here when he gave them that scripture, and he's just saying to them it'd be a good idea if they'd read their scriptures and understand what they were talking about. And then the second quotation is found in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verse 27, what we call a resurrection chapter. And in that, we have the quotation, He hath put all things under his feet. Well, that is quite obvious from that psalm that it doesn't refer to today because we will see it in a moment. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, But now we see not yet all things put under him. There not put under him today, that is for sure. But now the fullest quotation is found in the second chapter of Hebrews, and it makes it very clear that Psalm 8 refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to turn and begin reading at verse 5. Here it says, "...for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come." Whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now you see he's quoting from this psalm here, Psalm 8. And then we go on. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. 
for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Again, it's called our attention that you and I are living in a day when all things are not put under him. So this psalm looks to the future. But let me read verse 9, Hebrews 2. But we see Jesus. Now, the psalm's talking about Jesus, friends. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, and he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, these are three remarkable quotations from this psalm that we have in the New Testament. Now, this second great messianic psalm begins with the statement, How excellent is thy name in all the earth. And it concludes with that. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. That's not a reference to the present hour that we're living in. God's name is not very excellent today in the world. I heard on the golf course not long ago a man taking the name of the Lord in vain in a way that was absolutely uncalled for and unbelievable in an old man that was standing right on the threshold of eternity. Walking down the street, I heard a very nicely dressed lady. She looked refined. Actually, she looked like she could be somebody's grandmother. And so gentle looking, but my, how she could swear. God's name's not very excellent today, and the fact of the matter is they're not saying much about God. I notice on the newscasts that they never mention God. He makes the news, too, but they never bring him into the news. Now, I've noticed that on an insurance policy, they recognize him that if your house is destroyed by fire or by an act of God, and what in the world is the Lord doing, running around destroying houses? I don't think so. But that's the only publicity he can get today. It's all bad as far as he's concerned. They're leaving him out, and they leave him out purposely. They don't want his word in the schools. And these broad-minded liberals today that believe that everybody should be heard and that pornography should be permitted because our liberties shouldn't be interfered with. Well, friends, don't I have a little liberty? I'd like to have prayer in school for my grandchildren. How about you? I'd like to have prayer today in public places. I'd like some recognition of God today. Do I have any liberties any longer in this land of ours? No, God's name is not excellent today. I listened the other night and watched on television a very excellent, thrilling travelogue of men who went to the top of Mount Everest. And they talked about when they got up there to the top of how terrific the winds were and that the old mountain, it was really talking back to them and letting them know that man was nothing. But no mention of God. Personally, I've never been to the top of Mount Everest, but if it's like the top of the mountains here in California, may I say the mountain, just a bunch of dirt and rock and a few trees up there. It doesn't talk back. It doesn't become violent. 
It doesn't make man feel little. God's doing that, friends. It was God on top of Mount Everest that let those men know how really insignificant they were. But they didn't find out how great God was. They just talked about nature. May I say to you that God's name is not excellent in the world today. Not at all. But this is a prophecy, this psalm. It looks to the future. It looks to a glorious future. You see, the second psalm, we saw man in rejection. And in this psalm here, this messianic psalm, we see God's man. And it emphasizes the humanity of Christ and his ultimate victory as man. It's a great psalm, by the way. In Psalm 2, it was man's rebellion against God. But here we see that man finally gains control of this earth, and the day will come when God's name will be excellent in all this earth. Now let me read then, beginning again with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory above the heavens. Well, maybe I should move back and look at something else here. It says at the beginning, and it's part of the inspired text, to the chief musician upon Getith, a psalm of David. Now, this is a psalm of David, and again, it's always been a question of the background of the psalm. And I want us to notice that upon the Getith. What does that mean? Well, you find it again in Psalm 81 and Psalm 84. And it's generally been interpreted as a musical instrument. It's a kind of a lyre. Now, I mean by that the instrument is called a lyre. I'm not talking about mankind today. They are also. All men are liars. David's going to say that in the Psalms. I said in my haste, all men are liars. And Dr. Carroll used to say, and I've had a long time to think it over, and I still agree with David. Well, I do too. Well, this evidently refers to a musical instrument, and it was the belief of Gesenius and Dalich, and this is the way they explained it, but that actually it was Rishai, a Jewish scholar, who said the word came from Gath, as it was an instrument which was known in Gath. And there you will recall that David found shelter when he was suffering and being persecuted. And he probably learned to play this stringed instrument, and he's the one that introduced it to Israel. And then the Vulgate and the Septuagint, they translate this word by wine presses. And I think there's something in all of this. And this is the psalm that reveals the wine press that the Lord Jesus went in for you and me, that he tasted death for all men. He tasted the bitterness of the wine press. Now, Isaiah will tell us later on that he's coming from Edom and he's treading out the wine press. And then the juice of the grapes that's on him at that time is not his own blood, but that of his enemies. You see, if the blood of Christ means nothing to you, you're not saved. You have to come up for judgment. 
It's either his blood or yours, my friends. That's the position that man is in today in this world. Now, this is a psalm of David. And there are those that try to read into it the death of the son or the death for the son. They think this was the psalm David wrote at the time of the death of Bathsheba's son. Or it was the death of the giant Goliath. Well, I mention all of these because of the fact that this is a psalm that apparently has a great and deep meaning. I had a professor once that gave this psalm the title, Stars and Sucklings. You see, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. And when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars, all the way from stars to sucklings. And this is a psalm that goes along with another nature psalm, Psalm 19. And there you have the sun and the scriptures. And it's S-U-N, sun. And it's quite interesting. The sun is not even mentioned in this psalm at all when it speaks of nature. It just is not here. Now, will you note it? And we want to move down into this psalm now because it is such a wonderful one. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. I think it's quite interesting that the Lord here makes it very clear that when he was here on earth, he said, except ye become converted, become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And it was those little children there that it was just a little picture back yonder at the so-called triumphal entry. And I don't consider that a triumphal entry. You wait till he comes again, friends. That'll be a triumphal entry. But that was a little adumbration, just a little picture of the fact that he's coming again to this earth. And that time that he comes, why, he'll establish his kingdom. But he says in the meantime that you will have to become converted and become as a little child. And I think that simply means that you've got to get right down, be born again, become a little child. A little child has to put aside all of his boasting and everything, and he just comes in simple faith always. The faith of a little child, how tremendous it is. So that what you have now in this psalm is the Lord, the Creator. You have nature, the creation, and you have man, the creature. And you have the relationship here. Now he says that you got to become like a little babe. And our Lord used that when he came in in the so-called triumphal entry. Now he says here, "...when I consider thy heavens..." the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, or that you put them in their place. You know the reason that the moon is where it is? And there's a star. I look at it every now and then here in Southern California. It's very bright when it gets over into the southwest, which means it's out yonder hanging somewhere in the South Pacific. It's out in that direction, and I look at that star. 
And I've often wondered, why is it there? Now, I want to confess to you, I don't know why it's there, but there it is. And I can tell you why it's there, too. It's there because that's where Jesus wanted it. He put it there. I have certain things in my study. Oh, I put this book here and that book somewhere else. You know why I do that? Because that's where I want them. The stars are not arranged according to the way I want them. Because I might move that one that's out yonder in the southwest. But it's there because that's where he wanted it. He put it there. And he's the one that's ordained them. And he says that the heavens are the work of his fingers. When he speaks of salvation, he says, "...who hath believed our report, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed." And that's the bared arm, by the way, of God revealed. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, his finger work. Or as John Wesley put it, God created the heavens and the earth and didn't even half try. Just finger work, you know, like a woman, you know, crocheting. That's what you have in creation. And that is something that God's put his glory above it. That is something that is great to us. And there's a glory in creation. But we don't worship these creations. We worship God. He's the creator of them. And they tell out his glory and his glory is above it. Now he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And they're still working on that. What is man? Man is a very complicated creature. He's a human being. We belong to a race here. And they try to figure out how we got here. The Bible says God created us and put us here. And then man went afoul. He turned aside. He disbelieved God, then disobeyed God. And why would God be mindful of man? Why not just wipe him out, get rid of him? Man today has made a failure on this earth. Man's a great failure. You know, we don't like that at all. We want to hear a success story. I think sometimes the most difficult job in the world is to be a cancer specialist. Since I have it, I've gotten in pretty close to that group. They're all pessimists, as I see it, because they don't have many success stories. And very few. But mankind is not what you call a success on this earth. He's really a miserable failure. He's got this universe in a mess. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, I'll tell you why man's important. And the son of man that thou visitest him. Nineteen hundred years ago, he made a trip down here and died on a cross to let us know he loved us. Didn't save us by love. He saved us by grace because we didn't have anything to offer. We weren't worth saving at all. God's made a trip down to this earth. I don't know about these other planets. They say now that Mars may be inhabited. Maybe it is, but that's all right with me. But I know one thing. He hadn't been there to die on a cross. He came here for that purpose. And then he says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. That's where we are. And hast crowned him with glory and honor. You see, the Lord Jesus, when he made appearances in the Old Testament, he was the angel of the Lord. But when he came to Bethlehem, he came much lower than that. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. But man lost that. And man doesn't really control this universe today. Science thought they had it under control. Now we found out science polluted the thing. 
And it looks like that this earth is going to become a great big garbage can today. And science made it that way. You've been worshiping science. You've got to get out of the garbage can in a hurry and get you another god. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. But they haven't been put that way yet. Wait till Jesus comes. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. God made it all. He's the creator. And this universe tells that the invisible things of him are clearly seen by the things that are made. Why, God made the fish. He made the stars. He made you and he made me. He's the creator. But someday, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But today we don't see that. And you and I are living in a universe that's groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for that redemption. But God is above all of creation. He set his glory above the heaven. And up yonder today is that man who came down here born in Bethlehem. And there is a glory, and we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think only by faith you're going to be able to see him, friends, as he's up yonder at God's right hand. And we all with open face beholding as in a glass, glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. What a prospect. Oh, what a glorious prospect there is for the child of God today. This is a wonderful psalm. If I could sing, I'd sing it to you. But I did the best I could. Oh, we've just stood on the fringe here, friends, of this glorious psalm that sings praises to my Savior. Now, friends, I come to the ninth psalm, and I said as we came from psalm to a messianic psalm to the eighth psalm, another messianic psalm, we were just like going up a stairway or climbing a mountain. Now, from here, that is from Psalm 9 through the 15th, and I guess that will be about six or seven psalms, we find another cluster of psalms that belong together. And actually, they tell out a prophetic story. And we were going uphill when we came to Psalm 8, climbing our ascending stairway. Now we're going to start downhill, as it were. And we'll go back down the mountain on the other side. And what we have in this section, we're getting glimpses of the Jewish remnant at the end time. And we see their suffering. We see the man of sin, the lawless one that's yet to appear on the earth. Now, this ninth psalm that we come to and the tenth psalm are very closely connected. There is a certain alphabetical structure here. It's an acrostic. It's not seen in our translation. It is in the other. And as a result, why you'll find that the Septuagint and the Vulgate, they put these two psalms together and consider them as one. 
And we have another musical term here. And most of these psalms are ascribed to David, by the way. David was the sweet singer of Israel. I think he was a great musician. And here we are told this is to the chief musician upon Muth Laban, a psalm of David. David wrote it, and this chief musician of Muth Laban. And what does that word mean? Well, it means death for the son. And as we called attention in Psalm 8, Dr. Thirtle and some others have identified that title back with Psalm 8, by the way. But I think that we can identify it here, the death of the son. And there have been several ways of identifying that to the life of David. And of course, the important one would be the death of Goliath, the champion. And then, of course, others identify it with the death of Bathsheba's son. But it means death for the son or the firstborn. And I rather think that it refers to what happened in the land of Egypt in that night of deliverance when there was the death for the son, death of the firstborn. And this psalm begins with praise just as the seventh psalm ended with praise. Now, in the seventh psalm, so here in the ninth psalm, the praise is in anticipation of the coming victory, when is the eighth psalm so beautifully predicted, all things will be put under the feet of him who was made a little lower than the angels. Therefore, we see here in this first section of this psalm a prophetic forecast of what earthly conditions will be when the Son of Man has received the throne and in righteousness and in peace." Now, with that thought in mind, notice the praise here that we have at the beginning. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. My, in view of the future deliverance that's coming, here is this great song of praise that the earthly people will join in in that day. Now, you have a picture of that, of course, in the book of Revelation, that great company out of the nation Israel that are there to praise God. The church will be there, 24 elders, a time of great praise unto God. Now, we move on into this, and here again we are moving, I think, into the time of that kingdom that's mentioned in the 8th Psalm, when all things will be put under his feet. Will you listen to this? When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou didst sit on the throne judging right. Now, the important thing today, Martin Luther, I think, put it like this, one with God as a majority and that he was not so much concerned about having God on his side as making sure he was on God's side. That's the important thing here, that my cause is right. Let's make sure it is. Let's make sure that we're on God's side. And now this is the time that's coming of judgment. Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. What a psalm this is. Listen to him in verse 6. O thou enemy, 
destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. Now, this is a very strong declaration of the judgment that is coming. And the question sometimes arises, is there enough preaching today of judgment? I would put it like this, that there is enough preaching of judgment of a sort. I listened to a sermon, and I have an opportunity now to hear more sermons than I've heard in years. And I would say two things. One is there are very few sermons on the subject of hell. Today, most sermons are sermons to comfort God's people. Actually, so many sermons are geared for those that seem to have some sort of a complex, folk that are just looking for somebody's shoulder to cry on. But the sermon I heard the other day, uh, it was on hell, but the bitterness of the man came through. And my feeling is that a man, before he preaches on hell, ought to search his own heart and make sure that If he's preaching on judgment and on hell, does it affect him? Does he have a heartbreak because men are lost? I suppose one of the finest things ever said about Dwight L. Moody was the fact that on one occasion a man made this statement. He was told that Moody had preached a sermon on hell. And this man, an unbeliever, made this statement. He said, you know, I don't like to hear sermons on hell, but if there's any man that can preach on that subject, it's Dwight L. Moody. May I say to you, not only should there be sermons on that, but there should be the right kind of man to preach it. And I suppose one of the reasons that I never preach more sermons on that is just very candidly because of this very thing, that I think we ought to be deeply moved in our own hearts. Now, he makes it clear here that the enemies of Israel are all to be conquered, which means this is for the remnant that are on God's side. This is God's victory, if you please. And actually, what you have here, the death of the son, that firstborn in Egypt, and I think it takes you right down where anti-Semitism was born. It started in the land of Egypt. Uh, king down there enslaved the chosen people, that nation, tried to exterminate the whole race and frustrate the grace and purposes of God in redemption. And ever since that time, the nations have been Israel's enemies. They'll continue to hate them till the day of deliverance come. May I say to you that today there is that feeling right at the present moment. Now, here we have in verses 7 through 12 here, the kingdom now is established, and the throne of righteousness is established. Listen to this. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And that's very important. My feeling is today that we're short on judges. My feeling is that there needs to be more judges who will follow the law and will always assess a penalty when the penalty should be assessed. Too many, I would say, soft-hearted, and I'm not sure soft-headed men today. And, of course, they're trying to be popular, and that seems the way to be. 
Now, righteousness is needed today. That which is right today. And the one who makes right is God. It's not what you think or what I think. It's God who divided the light from the darkness. I've never been able to separate them. I've never gotten up before daylight and waved a wand and brought the sun up. God does that. And he's the one today that when he says a thing is right, it's right, friends. And if you don't think so, you are wrong. (laughs) That's just the way it is. That's just as simple as it is. Somebody's got to make the rules. So he makes the rules since it's his universe and he's running it. And he's going to be around a long time. I think he has that prerogative today. This is a tremendous section that you have here. Now, I'm going to have to begin to hit high points, as you can see, as we move along. And I come down here to verse 13. Now, we have here a picture of the condition before he comes to establish his kingdom. And what is it that we all need before he comes? Listen to verse 13. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. I don't know about you. I need mercy from God. And somebody says, but you say there'll be justice. Right. But you see, justice has already been established in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he bore our sins. And he's been made unto us righteousness. And what I need today is mercy. And mercy is extended to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer from those who hate me, thou who liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. And we need today more people to rejoice in God. Now, notice verse 15 here. This is a tremendous verse. The nations are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. And look at the nations of the world today. Even the great nations of the world. Even our own nation, we have sunk down into a pit. We seem to be caught. That's the condition of the world at the present hour. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And that's Higion Selah. That is a tremendous verse, by the way, here. And we find here the cry goes out, the wicked shall be turned into Sheol, that is, into death, and all nations that forget God. And that's a great principle that you can put down. This is a great psalm. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. They are today. Oh, they have the poverty program. But the man at the top seems to be getting it before it gets down to those who need it. The needy shall not always be forgotten. He's going to judge the poor. That's another thing. They're going to get justice someday, and they won't till Jesus comes. You know, we poor people ought to be more interested in the Lord Jesus. So many of those that are in poverty are turning to certain political parties and they turn to certain political candidates. And this has no reference to any party at all. But my friend, I have news for you. They're not going to do much for you. They're all trying to get in office. And they're not really attempting to help the needy. The Lord Jesus is not running for office. 
He already has it. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he's not really anxious to try to please any party or any group on this earth. When he came here the first time, he came to do God's will. And since he's God now and comes again, he's going to do his own will. And my friend, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. They are expecting a great deal from man today, but only God can meet that. Listen to him, verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged in thy sight. And the nations are yet to be judged. The Lord Jesus gave a parable that the nations are yet to come before him. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but man. And there's some today that feel like they're operating in the position of God. What a wonderful psalm this is. Now, Psalm 10, that belongs to it in many ways. In Psalm 9, here, that Goliath, or Pharaoh, however you want to look at it, the death of the Son. He's merely a little picture of the Antichrist that is yet to come, Satan's man. And that means that he's to be put down someday. Now, when you come to this next psalm, Psalm 10 here, we have Satan's man. He's the man of the earth. And that means it's closely identified with this ninth psalm. And the wicked here, notice how he's described. And I'll just lift out a few high points here. Verse 1, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble. Now, what a picture that you have here. Now, notice this. He says here, "...the wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth." Now, notice there are two things that characterize the wicked here. Pride and boasting. And you look around the world today, if you want to know who the wicked are of the great of the earth, they're filled with pride. They have no place for God at all. The second thing is they do a great deal of boasting. And I personally, I don't know about you, I'm not impressed by these men today, these politicians and world leaders that are always boasting of how they're going to solve the problems of the world. They remind me of that mountain that travailed and brought forth a little mouse. They boast great things, think they're God, and then they don't seem to be able to do anything. In fact, they do practically nothing at all. What a picture that you have here of the wicked. And this is a picture, of course, of Antichrist. He's the false Messiah. And you find that he's the one that is boasting. And he's identified in this psalm. I'm going to just move down and lift out certain things. Verse 4, "...the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God." God is not in all of his thoughts. God doesn't just get into the conversation and in the speaking today. God is probably the most unpopular person that there is in the world right now. And why? Because the wicked are in the saddle of this earth. 
and moving toward the time when the sin of man will lead to the man of sin and to this final Antichrist. Pride is what identifies him. And our translation says, God is not in all his thoughts. I think we can make it more emphatic and more literal by translating it like this. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now there begins to emerge on the scene for the first time in the history of the world those that are atheists. You see that there were none back in the beginning. They were too close to the mooring mask of Revelation. After all, Noah knew a man who knew Adam. When you're that close to the Creator, you're not apt to deny the existence of God. And when the Ten Commandments were given, there's no commandment against atheism, but there was against polytheism, the worship of many gods. And that was the problem with man at the beginning. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. At the first commandment. Second, thou shalt not make unto thee any likeness of anything, heaven above, earth beneath, beneath the earth, etc., etc. Two commandments about polytheism, nothing about atheism. Why? There weren't any atheists at that particular time. Now they begin to appear as man moves away from revelation from the beginning. Why, then we find that man turns to atheism. And David will mention this several times in the Psalms. We'll wait till we get to another occasion to call attention to it. And there's something else that Antichrist will be. He'll be an atheist, filled with pride and boasting. Then there's something else that characterizes him. Verse 13 in Psalm 10 reveals, "...wherefore doth the wicked despise God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Now, he not only doesn't believe in God, but he despises him. And it's very interesting to despise somebody that doesn't exist. But apparently, he'd have to exist to build up this kind of bitterness and hatred. But what he says here, thou wilt not require it, what he's saying, there is no judgment. And that, of course, is the position of men today. great multitude of people are now emerging in our contemporary culture who are saying, there is no God, or if he is, he's too far away for them to bother with him, and that there's not going to be any judgment. And that is the position that many, of course, today take. And when you take that position, then anything goes. And, of course, that's that philosophy that's back of the fact there ought not to be any kind of punishment or any kind of prisons or anything for criminals. And they say that the methods used today do not reform criminals. Whoever said that the purpose of the prisons and punishment was to reform? It never was. The purpose of it is to deter crime. That's the reason that God gave that And judgment is coming. It's inevitable upon the earth. The closer we get to it, the less man believes in it. These are remarkable psalms, friends, because they amplify a great many truths that you get historically and prophetically in other portions of the Word. Now, will you notice as you move on down in this psalm here, verse 18, and I go right to the end, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth 
may no more oppress the man of the earth. That's Antichrist. You see, the wicked with pride of countenance will not seek God. All of his thoughts are, there's no God. And we find that they deny the Father and the Son. And we find in all of this, what can man do? His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. That's man today, as he boasts of his prosperity, and that the fact he does not need God today. Now we come to a little psalm, that's Psalm 11 here. It's a psalm of David, and we are told it's to the chief musician. We do not know what circumstances, though, under which it was written. But, of course, it came out of the persecution and the trials in the life of David. And this is a wonderful little psalm. "...in the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain." This is today what the psychologists will tell you. What many people tell you, sometimes the doctor, what you need to do is to get away from your problems. Get away from here and go off somewhere else. What you need is a rest. Get away from the present circumstances. Flee as a bird to your mountain. Get away from it all. My friend, that doesn't solve the thing. A very wonderful housekeeper years ago in the South said to her mistress, who was complaining and whining, and she wanted to get away from it all. And she says, what are you trying to get away from? You want to get away from this beautiful home? You want to get away from these lovely children you have? You want to get away from a wonderful husband? No matter where you go, you're going to have to lug yourself along. And my friend, you can never run away from yourself. How true that was. And they were telling David, flee as a bird to your mount. I won't solve your problems, friends. I'm sorry, but that's not the way they're solved. Now, the question has always been, when did David write this psalm? It's called a psalm of David. It's a very brief psalm. And obviously, it was composed at a time when David was under pressure and persecution. And just when that was, it's difficult to identify. But Peroni has said this, and I'd like to give an extended quotation from him in light of the fact that I do not think anyone would call him a sound interpreter. He would come in the field of liberalism, but listen to what he says. And if he says this, I'm sure that most of us could go a little farther with it. Listen to it. The singer is in danger of his life and timorous and faint-hearted counselors would fain persuade him to seek safety in flight. But full of unshaken faith in God, he rejects their counsel, believing that Jehovah, the righteous king, though he tries his servants, does not forsake them. Not the righteous, but the wicked have need to fear. The psalm is so short and so general in its character that it's not easy to say to what circumstances in David's life it should be referred. The choice seems, however, to lie between his persecution by Saul and the rebellion of his son Absalom. 
Dalich decides for the last and thinks the counsel, flee to your mountain, comes from the mouth of friends who are anxious to persuade the king to betake himself, as he had before done when hunted by Saul, to the rocks of the wild goats. It is in favor, to some extent, of this view that the expression in verse 3, when the foundations are destroyed, points to a time when lawful authority was subverted. And may I say that I think that's a remarkable statement coming from a liberal, and this is one time, and you can mark it down, that I agree with the liberal. I think this psalm has reference, actually, to the time he fled from Absalom. And again, here's another expression from the heart of this great king, David. Now listen to him again. In the Lord put I my trust, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. Get away from it all. Now I believe today that in our mechanical society and very monotonous culture where you can sit in an automobile for seven hours on a freeway and it is very monotonous driving. Flying in an airplane today is a wonderful experience, but after you've been across the country and around the world, it really gets monotonous just to sit up there in a bus that's got big wheels. You're way up in the air and there's not much to see up there, not much to do. My feeling is that it's very wonderful for a person to get away to a restful place, away from the noise of the traffic and the busy life and the noise of the city today, and to be out where he can rest and relax. I don't think that that would be harmful at all. But if you are trying to run away from your problems and you're trying to run away from a situation that you ought to face, why, it's not good advice. And if you're running away because of fear, and there are great many were counseling David to run away and to actually get out of the country in that day. They were the ones that were very much afraid. And the reason for it was that here was this son of his actually seeking his life. And we read in verse 2, For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may secretly shoot at the upright in heart. In other words, those that were following Absalom now, they were willing to kill David, and they would have had they had the opportunity. And there was great bitterness on both sides. And finally, when Absalom joined battle with his father David, David didn't leave the land, you see. David retreated where he could reconnoiter. And then he came against his son and those that were aligned with him. And David gave specific instructions to his three captains. He says, remember my boy Absalom. Don't harm him. I want him saved. And Absalom made a big mistake fighting David and the veterans that were with him because David was a seasoned warrior and he knew all the tricks of the trade. He knew how to fight out yonder in the woods and in the mountains and in the valleys. 
And Absalom and his men were not as experienced, and they lost. And the bitterness was on David's side, too, not in David's heart, but Joab, one of his captains. He said, that boy that's caused David such heartbreak and now leading this rebellion, and he'd kill all of us, including his own father. And when Joab had the opportunity, I tell you, he put a dart through him and killed the boy. There was bitterness on that side, you see. And this is what broke David's heart. I don't think David ever recovered from that. And when Absalom took over and David fled from Jerusalem, law and order had disappeared. And no longer was the worship of the living and true God. And the question is, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's still a good question. It's a good question today when the authority of the Word of God is being challenged on every hand. We have the new morality, which actually is old sin, which the Bible has condemned from the very beginning. And the question is, what can the righteous do? Well, I'll tell you what the righteous can do, what the psalmist tells us. Listen to this. The Lord's in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold the children of man. He's testing. God is watching us today. And friends, the only place to turn is to him. That's what the righteous can do. When the foundations are taken out from down here, then you have God to cling to. Abraham reached that place. When it says, Abraham, believed God, it means Abraham just threw his arms around God, held on, he believed God. And these are days when we can believe God and hold on to him. And I say that it's time for many of us who can't sing to at least say the hallelujah chorus. How wonderful God is. Now, verse 5, "...the Lord trieth the righteous." or testeth the righteous, but the wicked and him who loveth violence is soul hated. God's going to make the distinction. God knows whose are his, and he tests those that are his own. Maybe he's testing you. He's tested me, and doesn't mean he hates us, but he's testing us for our good, his glory. But the wicked that loveth violence, God hates him. And this idea that God is just lovey-dovey, you better read the Psalms again. God hates the wicked that hold on to their wickedness. And I don't think God loves the devil. I think God hates him. And he hates those that have no notion of turning to God. Now, very frankly, don't like this distinction that I hear today. Oh, God loves the sinner, but he hates his sin. My friend... God has loved you so much, he gave his son to die for you. But if you persist in your sin and continue in that sin, you are the enemy of God, and God is your enemy. Let's make that very clear today. God wants to save you and will save you. But until you turn to him, and when you turn to him, you will forsake your iniquity and your sin. And until then... May I say to you, this idea today that God is a levy devil and he's a sentimental old gentleman from Georgia, you're wrong. He's not that at all. Now he goes on to say here, "...upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup, 
You see, the cup of iniquity is filling up today. God's letting it fill up. He's not doing anything right now. The wicked prosper today. He makes it rain on the unjust as well as the just. In fact, it looks to me like they get more rain than anybody else. And this is their day. And the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Friends, this is a marvelous psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. And it reveals here in a very wonderful way that in a time of trouble, when the foundations are removed, and they are today, we're to look from earth to heaven. We're to look to him. And what a wonderful picture this is. Now, that brings us to the twelfth psalm. Now, the twelfth psalm is prophetically, like I think the preceding ones, it refers ultimately for a final fulfillment to the final interpretation to the days of the tribulation. That'll come upon Israel's godly remnant in that day. And we must understand it's the remnant, the godly remnant of the nation and the godly Gentiles in that day. Now, in the opening verses here, we find a description of the apostasy that will be in those days. You see, there's an apostasy of that nation as well as an apostasy of the church. Listen, help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. And it's easy to develop an Elijah complex. I only am left. I'm the only one standing for God today. A lot of us develop that complex. It's not accurate, but the godly man ceases it. For the faithful fail from among the children of man. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. And if there was a day when Christians needed to speak the truth, that is, we ought not to say one thing to a man's face and another thing to his back. This double heart, a double face, two-faced, it's an awful thing today. Now, verse 3, "...the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things." My, how he goes after pride in this psalm here. "...who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us." We're going to say what we please. And the apostasy in the church is noted by pride like this that speaks great things. Jude speaks of the apostasy coming in the church. Their mouth speaketh great swelling words. In other words, they're a bunch of liars, if you please. And that's what we have here. Now, as you move on down in this psalm, what about those that are gods? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him who puffeth at him. Or putting it like this, I will set him in safety at whom they puff. And that's what the enemy does today. The godly will do in that day. They just huff and puff like the old wolf with the little pigs, you remember. They got in their house. At least one of them, his house stood up there. Other two little pigs, they lost their house because they, the old wolf huffed and puffed it down. That's a good story, by the way, that illustrates actually what David is saying here. God says, I'll set him in safety at whom they put. I'll hide him in the cleft of the rock. I'll put him in the place of safety. 
Now, we're told here, as we move on down, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tested in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now, the wicked boast, they use flattery. And who can you believe? Well, the words of the Lord are the ones that are pure. That's one reason we need to spend more time in this book, friends. This is the one place you can turn today. This is the fortress God wants to put us in. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. We live in a day like that. That'll be especially true in the great tribulation period. And the thing that was said to those in Jerusalem, "'Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified. And they did that in mockery. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. This, may I say, is a marvelous, wonderful picture that's given to us. It describes the temple worship in Jerusalem during, the, I think, the end of the age. And you remember the Lord Jesus said in his day, when they came out to arrest him, he said, the enemies drew near. He says, it's your hour and the power of darkness. And I think we go through that. And God won't let it happen to his own unless it'll accomplish some worthwhile purpose in their hearts and in their lives. Now, we are in, actually, a rather doleful section of the book of Psalms, and they are connected here, by the way. We have a direct line that have a very close connection, and that began back with Psalm 9, and it will continue right on through Psalm 15. And these psalms, they have to do with that time of trouble that's coming and the different ones that figured during that time of trouble, the Great Tribulation. Antichrist is identified in this section, as we've already seen, and that Jewish remnant that will be true to God, and also the great company of Gentiles that will turn to the Lord during that period. And yet it's a time of great testing. And David writes this psalm out of an experience, and it has a contemporary interpretation. It also has a prophetic or a chronological interpretation. It reaches down to the very end of the age in which actually we're living today and after the church is removed. It has a wonderful application to us. Now, in this 13th psalm, David was being pursued, obviously here, by Saul. He was hiding in the cave of Adullam, and probably the Philistines were teamed up to find him out. He probably was in the wilderness of Ziph. And this man, day after day, found himself in this very awkward position. And in weariness of body and soreness of mind and heart, he cries out to God, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? In other words, he sounds a very pessimistic note here. How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? He feels as if 
God has forsaken him, and he's on his own. And what you have here is, as Dr. Franz Dalich put it, you have a long, deep sigh. It comes finally from a relieved breast by an already much more gentle and half-calm prayer. This is the way he described it. And will you notice now, how long, he says, shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? How long will this continue? At this time, David was a very weary man. And then he turns in prayer to God. This is his resource and his recourse. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, he said, I'm afraid to go to sleep. Help me to sleep that I get rest, but at the same time that no enemy will come up and kill me while I'm asleep. David, you see, was in grave danger at the time he wrote this. Lest mine enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those who trouble me rejoice when I move. He said the enemy would rejoice, and of course, he would rejoice against God, by the way. But now notice, he settles back in wonderful faith and trust in God, having heaved this sigh, this awful sigh of sorrow. And then it continues into a prayer, and then he finally rests back, and a faith in God. This is a beautiful psalm. Listen. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Now, David didn't think he was going to be smart enough to get out of this on his own. He took every precaution, of course. But he knew only God could deliver him, and God was his salvation. And he says, I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. My friend, today, wherever you are and whoever you are and however you are, can you still sing praises to God? Now, I find it easy today, and the Lord has been so good to me, and it's easy for me to praise Him today. But I think of that man that's right here in Southern California, a man that was in the world for many years, ignored God, and then he took cancer flat of his back, and he's turned to the Lord through listening to this program. And right now, I suppose he's listening. And he is in a bad condition. Yet a friend of mine who visits him told me, he says, it would rejoice your heart and humble you to go and visit this man and see how in the midst of this that he talks about how good God has been to him and how God has saved him and how wonderful he is. May I say to you, when you can praise God in a spot like that, you've arrived, and you may be much farther along than I am, my friend. Now, we come to Psalm 14 here. I wish I could stay with these psalms longer than I am. I reluctantly leave each one of them, but after all, this is just a five-year program, and we do have to move along. Now, in the 14th Psalm... This is a psalm that you find it actually linked to other psalms. The 12th psalm, for instance. 
in that psalm, you'll recall we saw the corruption of the last days. The godly man had ceased, it looked like. And the godless was in control of the earth. And corruption and wickedness and lawlessness abounded. And you may think it's a picture this day, but actually, if I may use the common colloquialism of the street, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till the great tribulation comes. And by the way, I hope you don't see that, because God's church, those that are in the body of believers, just not going through it. He's already said, He'll keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try them that dwell on the earth. That's not for the church. He said they'll leave before that time. So we have here the corruption and wickedness of the last days, actually the end of the age. And this psalm certainly sets it before us. Now, will you notice here that it has a marvelous arrangement. And it has such a fine arrangement made by Bishop Horn that I'm going to use his outline today. And he divides this psalm into three parts. You have the corruption of the world in the first three verses. And then you have the second division, the enmity against the people of God. That's verses 4 through 6. And then verse 7, the longing and prayer for salvation. Now, this is the picture of this 14th psalm. You can see it's a very brief psalm, but very important. Now, for the first three verses... And we have in these first three verses, I'm reading now verse 1, "...the fool hath said in his heart, There is no God." Now, the Hebrew word for fool here is Nabal. Now, that may ring a bell in your thinking, because there was a man by the name of Nabal. He was married to a very lovely woman by the name of Abigail. And this man Nabal fell down dead, and he was actually a fool. That's what his name meant. He was a fool. He acted a fool. He wanted to fight against David, which had been a big mistake. And when Abigail, who was apparently a very lovely person, and I think she was the greatest wife that David ever had, and so we have here that man Nabal. And that's the word that's used here. Now, the word can be translated by the word simple, or silly, or simpleton, or fool, or madman, that is, insane. And I had a friend that had wonderful success in dealing with atheists, and he was a real brain, by the way. He was in a group of men one day, and one of these atheists there, they're generally big-mouth individuals, he was saying, I don't believe there's a God. I just don't think that there's a God, and I think man, when he dies, he doesn't have a soul. He's just like a dog when he dies. And he was just raving on and raving like a madman. This friend of mine waited till the group began to break up, and he went to this man. He said, by the way, did I understand you to say that you're an atheist? The man launched into another tirade. No, he didn't believe there was a God. Well, my friend said to him, said, I'd like to ask you a question or two. He said, now, the Bible says that the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And that word fool means insane or a madman. Now, he says, 
Either you were not sincere when you said that, you were just talking for the benefit of this crowd, or else you are a fool and a madman. You're insane. And he said, I'd just like to know which one it is. Now, I say to you, the man turned and walked away, because only a madman in this universe today, and with what man knows about the universe already, he has to be a madman to say there is no God that's back of this universe that we're finding now is ticking off its time more accurately than any clock or watch that man can make. And friends, there's no watch running around today that some man didn't make it. And a universe that is time much better than any clock, I want to say that universe tells that somewhere there's a universe maker. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And the fool begins now to appear on the scene. We've already had, by the way, one reference to it back in the 10th Psalm, where it says, God is not in all his thoughts. And the better translation is, all his thoughts are, there is no God. That is the place. Now, the very climax, therefore, of imbecility, as someone has said, is the man that says there is no God. And he exhibits the very depth of human depravity. Now, I want to say it, and I want to say it carefully, because I recognize that many of them have PhDs today and are teaching in our universities. But the lowest that a man can go in human depravity is an atheist. That's what the Word of God says, not what Vernon McGee says. You're a madman. You're crazy. You haven't any real sense. Now, you may have a high IQ, but I used to teach with a man that was a PhD and he didn't have sense enough to get in out of the rain. And I'll be honest with you, that's true. I played golf with him one day, and it began to rain. And he looked at me, and he says, what shall we do? <laughs> what will any sensible person do when it starts pouring down rain? I said to him, I think we'd better get in out of the rain. Even I knew that. But he didn't seem to know it. He said, what shall we do? May I say to you, and he was really asking for information there, by the way, what shall we do? Now, will you notice, this psalm goes on and says, They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And I believe you'll find that every atheist is also a great sinner. I think that you'll find him also given over to gross immorality. That's characteristic. A man was telling me some time ago, who mixes with the college set today. He said, it's amazing the number of PhDs who claim to be atheists and who are living in gross immorality. And he says, some of them actually living in filth. And I mean just old material, physical filth. Now, he says here, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And what did he find? They're all gone aside. Now, they may not be atheists, but this is quoted in the third chapter of Romans by Paul. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, that's a picture of you and me, friends. I'm not an atheist, and I don't imagine you are. But we're sinners. We do not do good. That's not the condition of man 
at all. So we have here, first of all, the corruption of the world given to us. And this is the very depths that man can go to. Now, verse 4, and we see in this section here something I think very important for us to see. It's enmity against the people of God. Now, they're not only against God, but they're against the people of God. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. And all of this pretense today on the part of rich politicians. And a liberal told me not long ago, I know him real well, he's a college professor, but he's a liberal, liberal in theology and liberal in politics. He calls these politicians today limousine liberals. He said they don't know anything about what the poor man goes through at all. They're rich men today, and yet they pretend to be liberal. They're like the rich man that the Lord told about that always lets some crumbs fall off his table for the poor man, for Lazarus, to keep him satisfied. Now, I've found no rich man today giving up his riches to help the poor. He's for giving up what little you and I have accumulated, and he'll tax us to death. But he somehow or another escapes the taxation. May I say, God sure does know human nature, does he not? This is the picture of them. Now, in verse 7 is this note of triumph. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. And this looks forward in anticipation to that glorious day when out of Zion will come that. The longing and prayer for God's salvation... When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now, you can't misunderstand that prayer. Now, anyone that says they do not believe God has a future purpose for Israel at that very moment are saying they do not know very much about the psalm. Because you may try to avoid what is so clearly stated in other places. But how you can deny when you come to a place like this that this is the heart cry and the joy of the psalmist is down yonder in the future. Now we come to the 15th psalm, and it's another very brief psalm, and it actually marks the conclusion of this section of this very interesting little book of psalms here that began with the ninth. And if you wanted to go back over them, you'd see a tremendous development here. And the 15th Psalm gives a description of those who are going to be in the presence of Jehovah. Notice how it begins. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, there's one holy hill. That's Zion, we're told. That happens to be over yonder in the land of Israel. That's what he's talking about. He that walketh upright worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honoreth them who fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not his money to interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. 
And actually, what David is saying, exactly what James says, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And in James, it's the works of faith, not works of law. Here it's the works of the law. But both of them produce a righteousness, if you please. And who's going to stand before God? Those that have had a faith in God that has produced a life down here. Faith alone saves, as John Calvin put it. But the faith that saves is not alone. It'll produce a life. Do you really believe Jesus is coming and coming soon? I hear so much of that today. But I don't see much change in people's lives. My friend, if you really believe it, you're going to have a life down here that's going to count for God. That's the real test of whether you're looking for Jesus to come. This is a tremendous psalm, is it not? Brings us to the end of this series.